And so, we land here at Trinity Sunday again, the beginning of a season focusing on spiritual growth. We've walked yet again with the church of the world and the church of the ages through the expectation, the incarnation, the life, ministry, passion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We now, in a certain sense, turn to the pursuit of growth and maturity as we follow the life of the church and the challenges of the sins that beset us and the pursuit of the virtue that we need to instill into our lives. In liturgical history, the octave of Pentecost has been, has been observed in honor of the Blessed Trinity from a very early age of the church. The name Trinity Sunday, however, was not used widely in the West except in the English church. And then, by extension, uh, in portions of the German church, evangelized by that famous British missionary, St. Boniface, which his feast day comes up, I believe, on Saturday. All of this points to an early practice of celebrating the Holy Trinity in the British church. Says one scholar, it seems probable that this distinctive ritual mark is a relic of the independent origin of the Church of England, similar to those peculiarities which were noticed by St. Augustine and which were attributed by the ancient British bishops to some connection with St. John the Evangelist. In this case, it is at least significant that it was St. John through whom the doctrine of the Holy Trinity was most clearly revealed, and also that the early Church of England appears never to, been, never to have been infested by the heresies on this subject which troubled other portions of the Christian world. The importance of this festival day at this location in the church calendar is particularly significant. The beginning of the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ is associated with a revelation of the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father sent his Son by the actions of the Holy Ghost. Our Lord's last command to his apostles was a commission to make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Our scholar again notes, the perfect revelation of the Holy Three in One may also be considered to have been made on the day of Pentecost, when to the work expressed by our Lord in the words, my father worketh hitherto and I work, was added, added that further operation of the Holy Ghost, which was previously unknown to holy men, but has ever since been familiar to the whole world. On Whit Sunday, therefore, we see the crowning point of the work of redemption and the Feast of the Trinity on the octave of Pentecost commemorates the consummation of God's saving work and the perfect revelation to the church of the three persons in one God as the sole objects of adoration. The Athanasian Creed, which we just recited, notes that this doctrine of the Trinity is a necessity of our salvation. 
Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. We ought, therefore, to be very serious about this teaching of the Holy Trinity. Our culture, this one that we live in, is not a culture that likes absolutes. It is not a culture that likes to be told that this doctrine must be believed. We in the church are so shaped by our culture that we often don't like to be told that either. So what does this mean that we ought to understand this doctrine of the Trinity as necessary to our salvation? Dr. Krauss says that it is simply this. The end for which we are created is that we should know and love God. The end for which we are created is that we should know and love God. He continues by noting that Aristotle in his, in his ethics says that final felicity is the pure contemplation of the noblest truth. To put it another way, our salvation finally consists in our worship, our knowing and loving the living God. We often want to see the things we do as the most important, our actions as the most important. We often understand the life lived for Christ as the final statement on our faith. And yes, that life lived is a statement about our faith. But our faith begins and ends in the worship of God. Our worship of the living God, says Krauss, alone can give these manifold activities of our Christian life final point and purpose. You've heard me say numbers of times, how we live matters. I'm not saying anything different. I'm just saying that our faith begins and ends in the worship of God. Our new life, this life that we're to walk and to live out right, it begins in baptism, wherein we are grafted into the body of the Son to become children and heirs of the Father, all by the operation of the Holy Ghost in and upon us, changing us, transforming us, making us new, making us born again, as the phrase goes. Our life of faith begins in earnest right there. And we are to contemplate that noblest truth of all the cosmos. God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We are to spend a lifetime knowing and loving this Creator and Redeemer, this unity of Trinity and Trinity in unity, this life of worship and adoration is the foundation for that Christian life, for the things that we do, the actions that we take, for this life that we've been given to live. I'll let Krauss have the last word today. Everything that has gone before leads up to this, points to this, and is fulfilled in this. 
For in this festival, we who are born anew of water and the Spirit, we who are risen with Christ, seeking the things which are above, we who are graced with God's Pentecostal Spirit, lift our gaze to look upon the mystery and the majesty of God himself, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not a festival which celebrates what God does. This is a festival which celebrates what God is. And the spirit of this day is therefore the spirit of worship, pure and simple, the spirit of adoration. Amen.